0: There you go, I think so, Good, okay. So um, as recently as this past Sunday night, we had our second grandchild. His name is Peter. And uh, Andy can tell I'm very excited. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for cueing me in on that too. So I brought up my phone just so I can keep track of time here. Thank you for introducing me, Tom. What he said is true, and in one way, my testimony could be about as short as Tom's introduction. Um, I jokingly told Tom that, you know, my testimony will probably be the shortest one that's ever been given at a men's breakfast, (laughs) and you'll see what I mean in a minute. However, as uh, David Holmes and I were just saying a few minutes ago, uh, your testimony is really the story of how God works in your life, and so in that regard, since I've been around for a while, I actually could have a really long one, so fortunately it's gonna be somewhere in between. <clears throat> Let me ask you first, and I'm gonna to try to make this a little interactive, so I would love it if you would you know, call out, say your answer, whatever. Um, I'm gonna do a little teaching as we go along here too. What makes a good testimony of faith in Jesus? What, for you, makes a good testimony? What do you think is an essential component to somebody sharing their story about their faith in christ
1: god glorifying
0: glorifying god okay right that should be a number one right thank you for saying it first what else
1: the difference that christ has made in
0: your life before and after all right starting with what was my life like before how did i become a believer what was it like after you hit three of my points there dave very good okay what else what lessons you've learned Okay, lessons learned. Good, thank you. I'll be doing some of that today. Um, It tells how my life has changed. It invites questions too, right? Sometimes there may even be some things that you say if you know your audience. If you're one-on-one with somebody and you know that they're really into sports, for example, you might tell a little example from your life of how Christ changed your perspective on playing sports. That might be a hook that you want to share with that person or throw out there. Okay, it should be an encouraging thing, right? People should leave being encouraged to hear how God has been at work. And I wrote down one or two other ones. Makes you want to know more about Jesus. And, oh, yeah, here's a really important one, and this is what kind of what Dave Holmes was saying, (coughs) is it should be focused more on the one who transformed me than on me, right? So I should be talking about my Lord and Savior, not about hey, how great Keith Brown is. Okay, so hopefully that'll happen today. Too. Change in priorities. Okay, good, right, change in priorities, absolutely. How did things, it, how did that paradigm shift happen in your life, and what's what's your life like now? So it gives the, re- the hearer a reason to be more aware that there is a supernatural world and that it has come to work in your life, and, of course... In our case, it's not just a supernatural world, but it's our supernatural Savior. So as I share with you, I'd like to help you get to know me, some of what makes me tick, and including the ways that Jesus has transformed my life. Uh, We'll do this as I kind of take you on a trip through my faith journey. Um, I'm going to share a quick background about me, and then we'll take kind of a winding up and down some pathways until we get to our destination. And there will be some time for... Q and A, if you'd like to do that at the end. Uh, If it's as short as I was saying, we may have a lot of time for Q (laughs) and A. I was born in Abington Hospital over in Montgomery County. Uh, My early years were spent in Huntington Valley, not too far away, it's about 12 miles uh, southwest of Newtown. After being a student and a swimmer at Lower Moreland High School, I went uh, further and further west in Pennsylvania. Uh, Went to Bucknell University for college, University of Pittsburgh for law school, and then eventually I ended up back here east in Newtown. I've lived here uh, longer than anywhere else for 38 years, and Barb and I have raised our two children, Heather and David, and I worked in a local law firm all those years, the same firm. My children are faithfully walking with the Lord right now, and this is kind of fun, the two of them are together today. Um, Heather is visiting Dave down in Kentucky, for obvious reasons, the new birth uh, brought her down there, and she's getting to spend some time with Judah and Peter. Judah's our first grandson. Um, I'm thankful for Grace Point, our church. For all these years, I have been strengthened many times and in many ways as Barb and I have had the opportunity to be deeply involved in ministry here in this Fellowship of Believers. So I'll be filling in some more details about my basic story as we go along, But the main thing that I want to communicate today, if you forget everything else that I say, please remember this. Our Father loved me, and of course he loves all of us, so much that he knew how prone I am to wander, so he allowed his son, my Lord Jesus, to rescue me from the danger of a life without him. Jesus did this through his unjust death, an excruciating, painful death on the cross and his glorious rising from the grave. I've been adopted to be called his beloved son, and I don't need to search for any other identity. I know who I am because I know whose I am, and I am who I am in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the verse that I quoted the day that I was baptized Hmm. in this church. Not this church, though. It was the other one. The one down (laughs) on State Street Uh, because it was a long time ago. ago. Uh, It speaks volumes of how I find significance in living each day by faith in Jesus. It says that I need not seek validation, which is really just for parking tickets, right? I wanted to throw in one dad joke before I got too much further in here. Um, Trying to find meaning in anything or anyone is pointless. It's pointless idolatry. It's an everyday struggle for me, though, to stay pointed in the direction of following Christ. Because let's be real, every day we're faced with temptations and challenges. And so even though long, long ago, and I'll tell you more about this in a minute, I became a believer every day. I need to be oriented towards Christ and following him and living that out, being crucified with Christ every day. So my testimony may be sort of a wandering visit to the ways that God has rescued me from willing enslavement to sin. I love that phrase. It's a phrase that comes from our speaker a week ago, Matt Moore. Anybody come to the uh, event last Saturday? Matt Moore said, being rescued from my willing enslavement to sin. So this is a little bit of a wandering visit of how that's happened and how God has grown me in my life so far. This isn't gonna be a linear recounting, okay? I'm just gonna warn you. Um, but since I'm a man of words, you probably know that. You could ask my wife and she would tell you that. One way that I'd like to share with you is my life in quotes. So I'm gonna be sharing quotes with you. I've already done a couple quotes from, um, from the, uh, the scriptures, but I'll also be giving you some other quotes that have meant something to me as I've gone through my life. So I'm gonna ask you this question. At various times in your life, what would you have had hanging on your wall, maybe in a dorm room, or um, on your mirror, or on your refrigerator, right? People put things on the refrigerator, remember them. Uh, Think about some of those things that you've had to remind you of an important truth. And it's okay to yell them out if you think of something.
1: He is no fool to
0: give up, which he cannot. He is no fool to give up, which he cannot keep, to gain that, which he cannot lose, Jim Elliot. Okay, Jim Elliot, famous quote, great quote, and a good way to remember that Christ makes all the difference in changing our <clears throat> perspectives, right? Yeah? My grandparents had one, it was a little plaque, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Will last, that's so great. I always remember that now. That's great, yeah, absolutely, yep. They, they, yeah, they've used that for a song, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Good. Because I struggle with pride sometimes. My verse is, uh, Where were you when I built the foundations of the earth? <coughs> uh, where your place is.
0: Excellent. Yep, absolutely. Good quote from Job, yeah, Job. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, here's one of the early ones from my childhood. Nothing as deep as what we just quoted, but um, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. <laughs> 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 now, remember. The Peanuts comic strip, that was big in our house, and uh, we used to enjoy every uh, Sunday looking at the funnies. And I wasn't named Charlie, but I knew I was a brown, for sure. (laughs) Uh, My mother was at home and and frequently busy at church. My father was busy at work. He was a personnel director, and then a vice president of human resources, which is just another way of saying personnel director, (laughs) for a uh, chemical company in the area. Uh, My parents passed on to me one of the best gifts in life, and that was my faith in God and a sense of a family identity that came from trusting deeply in him. Now, I didn't get my faith from my parents, but I learned to see it by them living it out before me. My faith came from my own personal uh, trusting in Jesus as my own personal savior. But my parents had a, a big role in that. So by the way, am I really a good man? Is Charlie Brown really a good man? Well, yes, but only by the grace of God, right? Nobody's good, nobody's good intrinsically. So I'm gonna share with you some um, principles. We talked about how a testimony can be uh, involving principles, and so I'm gonna be sharing with you some principles that I'm just gonna call laws of life. It's the way things work. my parents and others in my life have lived these out before me. And it slowly dawned on me as I have grown that these are really true and things that we should live by. So the first one is start well and finish well. You've probably heard the saying you should finish well, right? Everybody talks about uh, it's really important to not just run your race uh, for the first few miles, but if you're going to be running a marathon, that last mile has to be strong. You wanna finish strong. But this law is actually start well and finish well. Starting well makes me think of what children need to be constantly exposed to. What would you say that is? Love. Love, absolutely, right? Love is the most important uh, component of a child's existence. It helps them to thrive and grow, and uh, it's the spiritual soil that they can grow in. Good. What other things are critical? to a child's uh, growth? Discipline. Discipline, absolutely, right, yep, good. Other things? I'd say an exposure to the Bible, and you can get love and discipline from, from that, for sure. Okay. Other things? Nurturing. Great, nurturing, right? Making sure that they have that environment where they can grow strong um, but with the protection and, uh, and love of their parents, okay? Well, if you want your children and grandchildren to grow in character, then you have to sow um, into their lives the truths of Scripture, and you have to s- sow into their lives that love that we were just talking about. So God, in his love letter to us, the Bible, <coughs> says it in this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I have commanded to you today will be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them, on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And that's found in Deuteronomy 6, verses four through nine. So this is the way that I received God's truth. My family regularly talked about God and looked for his hand in everyday experiences. We prayed every day together. When Barb and I raised our children, we did the same thing with them. We talked to them about faith things and we, Uh, made sure that every evening we prayed with them and heard about what their struggles were. Another law of life is this, the law of cause and effect. So our goal as Christians in life is to what? How would you fill in that blank? Serve Christ. Serve Christ, okay, good. And that can look like a whole lot of different things, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. The Westminster Catechism says that we should glorify God God and enjoy him forever, right? Okay. Um, We should grow and mature in our faith. We should make it to heaven not by the skin of our teeth, but with something to show for what we've been doing on this planet for the however many years we have. Okay. So if those are our goals, how do we get to that goal? How do we get to the goal of glorifying God and enjoying him forever? One way, I would say, is by making wise choices. Making wise choices. And who is it that's going to give us that wisdom? Clearly, Scripture tells us in James that we should ask God for wisdom, so that wisdom comes from God. And how do we have any hope of becoming wise like God? Proverbs 1-2 says that the purpose of the book of Proverbs is... To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, and then Proverbs 1.7, just a few verses later, says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But in Psalm 33, verse 18, it says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those whose hope is in his steadfast love. (coughs) So when we hear about fearing God, a lot of times people say, I don't want to be afraid of God. But fearing God is having a healthy awe or reverence for him. It's a respect for him. And it seems to me, this is my own personal opinion, but I've been around long enough that I can form personal opinions and share them with you, um, that we face um, these issues in post-Christian America because no one wants to make moral judgment preferring to pretend that right and wrong are best determined on an individual basis. So I really appreciated this past Saturday how Matt Moore shared with us um, that the ones in his life, as he was walking in the LGBT lifestyle, who were most powerfully used by God to shape his heart in the direction of faith, were not the ones who preached at him, but the two or three who consistently reminded him of morality, that God cares about how we live. He said the people who love an LGBT person best are those who love Jesus fully. His grandma, Beth, was one that he shared about. Remember that? Um, She was inquisitive and willing to listen and that was important for him because he needed somebody to listen to him and then remind him of the truth. So 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10 says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." That's my testimony. That's my life. I have received God's mercy, and my attitude because of that is one of gratitude. I'm very thankful for the fact that I was able to become a believer at a young age, and I'll tell you about that in just a second. Um, There's another law of life. Take responsibility for your actions. How much better would this world be if everybody just did that one law, right? (laughs) We just owned up and said, yeah, I made a mistake, and I'll make it right. So the The first way, yeah, the devil made me do it, that's right, a lot of people use that excuse. The first way that we need to take responsibility is to admit that our own actions are motivated by self-interest, seeking to be the ruler of our own little world. So if we admit our lostness, then we're more ready to take the next step, which is to be found. So in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, or desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And it goes on from there, and it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And I love that phrase, the fountain of living water, because it's the same living water that Jesus offered to the woman at the well. When you think about it, that was what he was offering her was himself. This passage flies in the face of what in our culture has been called therapeutic moralistic deism, the belief system that tells us to just trust our heart. Well, I'm not trusting my heart. I'm trusting the hand of the savior who laid down his life for me. When I was a boy, I was about six. I knew that I was often making foolish choices that were against the rules of my parents, that I was headed way too often in the direction that displeased them. Like going into a stream near our house, even though I had been told not to then thinking that my parents wouldn't notice that I had mud on my shorts. This is just a little example. Or staying out past sundown, even though I knew that was my cue for heading home. I was a little boy now, remember. This is the kind of stuff I did. So I heard that the gospel clearly explained in Sunday school. My teachers, I remember, were Mrs. Hammerschma and Mrs. Worthington. And I heard this just about every week. And I went home one Sunday and I thought about how good it would be to exchange my sins for God's forgiveness the forgiveness that Jesus had bought for me on the cross. So I was taking responsibility by asking for forgiveness. I was an only child and kind of private, so it didn't occur to me that I could have done that when I heard the gospel story in the Sunday school class. Instead, I went home and was in my bedroom. I could have gone and told my parents, and I didn't do that either. They eventually figured it out, but, um, and I told them, eventually. But since I've always been kind of a visual person, and even at that age, I was focused on words, which as you know, lawyers use all the time, sometimes too many, um, I guess I sort of wanted to drive a stake in the ground. And so I took this little framed portrait that I had of Jesus. And back in those days, lots of people had this little depiction of Jesus, what an artist thought he might've looked like. And I took it and I turned it over and I wrote on the back in orange crayon, take away my sins. Except I didn't put an E on the take, and I forgot to put a please, but I figured it was okay. Jesus <laughs> understood. <laughs> and it was, um, it was at that moment that Jesus uh, took away my sins and I became a believer in Christ. Um, as you know, a six-year-old has a simplistic way of looking at life. And so um, it took a while for me to understand exactly what that decision meant. And I like to say that I've been making a series of decisions for Jesus ever since then. In fact, as I said a few minutes ago, we make a decision every day, right? I'm going to live for Jesus or, no, I don't care about that. I'm not going to pay attention to that. But Jesus did take away my sins. He's transformed every day since then. And I figured out it's been about 20,820 of them. Um, And that's almost 500,000 hours, in case you're interested. (laughs) Um, Some of that time I've been sleeping, but most of the rest of the time, I've been tempted or challenged, as we all are. So about 20 years ago, my son Dave was turning 13, and he was going to have a birthday party with some of his good friends. Uh, Barb and I decided that it was a good time for us to affirm him uh, for him some principles of biblical manhood that could help him with his maturity and that he should be growing and increasing in these in, in measures in his life. So we reviewed four principles of manhood with him. And these are the four principles. And if you ask my son, he could still tell you all four of these because we went over them more than just that one day. <laughs> the first one is reject passivity. Second one is expect God's greater reward. Third one is accept responsibility, which is the law that we're talking about right now. And then the fourth is lead courageously. Okay, I didn't come up with those four. Uh, They were uh, part of a a biblical manhood curriculum that we're doing with our son, but um, I learned as much as he did from doing that with him, and I thought it was a really good lesson. And I'd like to just do a quick contrast of two men as we think about them in the Bible. Adam was the one who passively watched as his wife ate the, uh, the fruit and was led into sin. And then he joined her. Instead of receiving the blessings of the garden, they both strove to grasp the knowledge of good and evil. And then they pointed their fingers at others, right? So they were passive. Unfortunately, they didn't accept responsibility. They pointed at others. And then after cowering uh, in the garden, God came and found them. So they were not acting courageously. On the other hand, our Lord Jesus acted with passion and purpose. He laid down his life for the church, who is his bride, expecting God to not only allow this Holy One to not see decay, but to be resurrected eventually, which he was three days later. And now he leads us by his Spirit living within us. So he leads us courageously. He accepted responsibility for sins that he hadn't committed, and he saw God's greater reward. So another law or principle of life that I've uh, come to appreciate is daily cultivate habits of the heart, body, and mind. This is loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is what we saw in Deuteronomy a few minutes ago. Matthew 22:37 37 says the same thing. One of the ways we can do that is by living in an attitude of self-forgetfulness. I actually have a book here that's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, written by Tim Keller. It's a great, um, really a sermon that he had preached at one point, it's turned into a booklet. Um, But the the point of it is that true humility is not thinking of yourself, uh, uh, thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And that's been attributed to C.S. Lewis. Actually, it's Rick Warren quoting C.S. Lewis, but it's the same idea of giving up on yourself, humbling yourself, and realizing that we need to be more surrendered to Christ. He must increase, and I must increase. (coughs) Another quote that I loved when I was growing up, and this was on my college dorm room uh, wall, is the longer the island of knowledge, the longer the shoreline of wonder. That's a quote from Ralph Washington Sockman. I don't know anything about Ralph, but it's a good quote. And um, the thing about it is the island of knowledge is surrounded by an infinite sea of mystery, right? And as that island grows, so does the shoreline, which is where wonder and learning and new ideas happen. It's the, the point is that Christ is the one who fills our lives with wonder. We can understand that He's the one who's going before us. We have no idea what's coming in the future. We don't know what's gonna happen in the next minute. But what we do know is that we can trust him because he's gone before. And that's where we can learn. When we're in the midst of a conflict, when we're in the midst of um, a challenge, when we don't know what's gonna happen next, we can exercise faith by trusting in him. So he must increase and I must decrease. Cultivating fruit is another way that we can uh, live that principle. Looking for the fruit of God's Spirit in our lives every day. Fruit of the Spirit are, let's say it together, okay? Love, love, joy, joy, peace, peace, patience, patience, kindness, kindness, goodness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness, and self-control, right? So there's nine of them, and I actually had a friend who Every month with his children, he would say, okay, this month we're going to look for goodness. (laughs) Or this month it's going to be self-control. That was a tough one. (laughs) And then they did that for nine months, and then for the next three months, which was always the end of the year, they celebrated the holidays, gave thanks for all the ways that they'd seen God at work in their lives. Um, We also should be... In in filling out this, this principle, we should be looking for ways to promote peace. Psalm 34, 14 says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's not a passive endeavor. It's something we should be actively looking for and promoting. Okay, the next law of life that I wrote down is God has a purpose for your life. I love books. It's just one of the things that I have a passion for. Uh, My wife doesn't as much as I do, by the way. Um, (laughs) I love to weigh the options, so I like to know what all the different options are that are before me. I like to help other people. I like peacemaking, which is why I'm talking about it so much. And I love my family, and I certainly love my Lord Jesus. But in all of this, God wants me to be godly, so whatever his purpose is for your life, Whatever you determine is the thing that he's wired you uniquely to do, it needs to be done in such a way that it honors him. And so in First Timothy 4, 7 through 9, it says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, we were talking this morning about running even on a day like today, And I give Max a lot of credit because he ran today. (laughs) That wouldn't have been something I would have done. But even though bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present (coughs) life, but also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So, is that something that uh, Paul wanted to highlight for Timothy? Yes. I'm sorry. Can you just repeat that whole... Sure. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, <clears throat> godliness is of value in every way as it builds up, uh, as it has promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's kind of a don't miss it. I just said something important, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, And so I see part of my calling as being a peacemaker. Uh, Peacemaking is a way to help people that are in conflict. It's not something that uh, people always want to acknowledge is important, but Christ gives us conflict uh, as an opportunity for us to grow. And this isn't just morally virtuous behavior. It's not just something that we can do to make others think that we're good. Because you can do that even from a motive of fear, or pride, or a desire for power. You can be in a position of idolatry and still do good behavior. Um, Another quote from that same person, Ralph Stockham, is let us not bankrupt our todays by paying interest on the regrets of yesterday, and by borrowing in advance the troubles of tomorrow. So when we think about peacemaking, it makes us look into our hearts and determine if I'm in a conflict with somebody else, maybe there's something going on in my own heart that is a progression of an idol. Let's face it, idols grow very readily in our hearts. And as I studied peacemaking, uh, even when I was in law school way back when, um, I realized that these are biblical truths based on uh, scriptural principles that we should apply in our daily lives. So the first part in the progression of an idol, these are all I statements, is I desire. I desire isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's okay to have some desires because some desires are perfectly innocuous. Some of them are intrinsically evil. I desire that you be gone. Well, that's not right. But the next phase in the progression of an idol is I demand. I need, I expect, and then I distrust. I start to think about what this other person I'm in conflict with is is deciding to do that is adverse to my own uh, existence. So I'm thinking they must have something in their heart that's evil. There must be something going on in them that's just not right. So not only do I demand, need, expect, and then start to distrust this other person, now I judge them. And so I say, you should do this, or you didn't do something that you should have. And then finally, I I become the judge and jury, right? I punish them. Since you didn't do this, therefore I will. You fill in the blank. Proverbs 12, three says, no one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. So we have to change our hearts at the root. And the best way to do this, and the way that I've uh, seen work well in situations of conflict is to say, What's going on in my heart that is so important to me that when I wake up in the morning it's the first thing I think about? What is it that I say in my heart I absolutely have to have? And if it's not my relationship with God, um, it's probably not as important as I'm thinking it is. It's becoming an idol for me. Now, 1 Corinthians was written to a divided church Some of the people were following Paul, others were following Apollos, and others were following Cephas. None of these people who were following humans were considering the importance of the teaching that all those people had given to them. And so the problem there was that they were all um, giving glory to one teacher or another. And so in this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, the author Tim Keller says, we need to think about what the first Corinthian church had to learn, which was that they had a natural condition of the human ego. And guess what? We still have it in the 21st century, right? That natural condition is that we're empty, painful, busy, and fragile. Our egos are empty. There's nothing about a human ego that is intrinsically good. It's always going to be focused on me. They're painful because they're always being stretched. They're busy trying to get recognition, and then they're also fragile from being stretched and then (coughs) deflated. But Paul shows us that we can have a transformed sense of self. And this is something that personally I've experienced by trusting in Christ more than in myself. Through the gospel, we can have this transformation so Paul doesn't look at the Corinthians for his validation, he doesn't look to the human court, or as Paul says, he doesn't even look to himself for the verdict that he is a somebody. Although he knows that he is the chief of sinners, it doesn't stop him from doing what he was called to do. Why is that? Well, the essence of the gospel, humility, is not thinking about myself, but thinking less and less of myself. And the ego is not getting puffed up, it's getting filled up. Enjoying things that are not about me, enjoying things about people who are around me for who they are. Well, this is a different way of looking at life. And Paul's point was, if you're living a Christian life, you can live for others more than for yourself. Your ego doesn't have to be blown up and and puffed up all the time. How do we get this? Well, the way to do it is by receiving the ultimate verdict. And I'm using some legal terms just because it fits the the situation. It's what Paul was talking about. He said, I'm not judged by you Corinthians or by anyone else, not even by myself, but rather he was judged by God. And the good word here is that it's, as Paul said, it's the Lord who judges me and his verdict comes uh, comes before any performance by me. In any other faith, performance leads to a verdict. What I do results in the deity being pleased or displeased, but the gospel tells me that it is done. It's finished. I have been declared innocent before the only judge who matters, and that's God, and that's because of his son, Christ's sacrifice on the cross. in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So with our faith like no other, the moment that I believed, that I told you about a few minutes ago, as a boy of six, Christ imputed his perfect righteousness, his perfect performance to me as if it were my own and he adopts each one of us into his family when we trust in him in that way. So Paul is out of the courtroom, right? He's even out of the trial because Christ Jesus went on trial instead. He took the condemnation that we deserve so that we never have to go on trial anymore. So we should relive the gospel in every moment as we go through each day, reorient ourselves to God, as I was saying before, and ask, what am I doing in this court? We should not be there because the court is adjourned. Another law of life, and we're getting close to the end now, is consider well your gifts and strengths when choosing a vocation or considering what you're called to do by God. Some examples of this for me were in college. As I was going through college, it was a uh, tumultuous time. Had to change majors. I started as a chemical engineer. Some of you know that I eventually switched to economics and that eventually led me to going into law school. I went from being on one kind of dean's list, which was scraping by, is he gonna graduate at all, to being on the other kind, and that was a way that God affirmed the change in my major. I also changed girlfriends. Um, For a time I was going out with a different person that wasn't working out too well. I liken it to letting go of a trapeze in midair without having the next one in clear sight. And that's the way it worked for me. I had no idea who my next relationship was gonna be with. I just knew that the one I was in wasn't right. And so I had to trust God and say no before he would say yes. And eventually I figured out that it was Barb. Barb and I already knew each other at this point. We'd been um, friends since my freshman year, but it wasn't until my junior year when I was in charge of the a Christian Fellowship large group um, and since I was in charge of that and she was the music coordinator because she's a very musical person uh, we had to get together once a week and eventually that turned into a long term relationship um, took us a while to get married but that was my fault not hers <laughs> 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 um, I did also change locations and jobs several times in the next few years at the end of college, at the end of law school, and I did a uh, judicial clerkship, worked for a judge for a year, and that meant there were a lot of questions about how God would provide. Barb and I had those questions, and we had to work through those, and it uh, grew our faith muscles quite a bit. Uh, More and more now, I realize that whatever I find to do, it is to shape my character, and that's what God is about. So another law of life is that in all of life, We should be knit in fellowship together with other believers. We should be frequently asking, who has God allowed me in, in my life to touch? So I'll challenge you for a minute, just think about who is that person or who are those people that God has you in touch with that he may want you to share a word of testimony, share just what's going on in your life, be vulnerable with them, and open them uh, up to your life and your testimony. You know that Satan's main goal with a person is to keep them from faith in Christ. But once they're ushered into the kingdom through faith in Christ, as I was at age six or so, uh, he will seek to pull them away, do everything he can to discourage them with their circumstances. Pride and fear are big emotional drivers, and this is what it looked like for me in middle school and high school. I had a band of friends who uh, were really tight. We had a tight community, and the community was being invaded by lots of other people. Developments were going in right and left. It was great, but we felt kind of funny, like we were the the natives and they were the outsiders. Um, And so sometimes I compromised by not speaking out about my faith. I had a close friend who was dabbling in witchcraft. Um, He got his friend pregnant twice, and they had abortions twice. This was in 1974. So that was right after Roe versus Wade had been decided. Uh, alcohol and drugs were really in abundant supply when I was in high school. I don't think that's changed, by the way. Um, and the senior class trip that I really wanted to go on, when everybody came back, there were eight of them that were uh, facing criminal charges. So I was really glad my folks told me I couldn't go. But at that point, I thought, "Uh, why did they say that? (laughs) Um, I was involved in a youth group that wasn't solid on the gospel, I'll just put it that way. And so I found another one, by God's grace. And what was the difference that, that was made in my life was that by meeting with that group of 15 to 20 other Christians who I met with weekly, to sing what I will refer to as early Christian songs. (laughs) This was way before the Christian music uh, got got, uh, off the ground. Uh, We studied the Bible and we would hang out together. That was the difference uh, that, that made a big difference in my life as I was going through high school and in preparing me when I went to college to look for that same kind of group of believers. A good friend from high school called me and asked me a few years ago if I would be on his team, he had fallen into a sin that involved uh, same-sex attraction, and he needed friends who believed in him to be there for him, for accountability, for encouragement, and to just listen. So do you think I said yes? Yes. A lot of you are nodding, yeah, okay. Well, you might say, how could you refuse? He's your friend, right? Um, I will tell you that I had been asked for the same kind of team about 10 years before that. And I had said no. And I regretted that, saying no, because the person who was reaching out to me thought he could count on me. And I, I just was feeling like um, people would think the wrong thing of me. I later regretted that choice and I made the right decision the second time. So for my high school buddy, I said yes. And I am glad to tell you that he has been Sober, which for somebody in that situation means he's been uh, living with his family of five and not engaging in any kind of relations with men uh, for the past three years, which is a big deal for him. And I'm praising God for his power to save. Uh, The last law of life that I want to share with you is in all of life, be learning. A second quote that I liked in college is it is better to light one little candle than to curse the darkness. It was first spoken in public, apparently, by Peter Benenson, an English lawyer and a founder of a group called Amnesty International. Um, but there are some uh, internet uh, sources that say that this was an old Chinese proverb. I don't know, and I didn't want to spend the time, so <laughs> that's the best I can tell you. <clears throat> but it is better uh, to light one little candle than to curse the darkness. When I was in law school, Uh, I was challenged in my faith, mainly because I always had to be on. I always had to be studying, preparing cases for class, attending class, and sometimes eating and sleeping. I didn't do as much of that then as I should have. And uh, the way that I kept saying at that point in time was to be involved in the Christian Legal Society chapter. Uh, That's the first place that I heard about biblical peacemaking. I got engaged and married in those three law years of law school. And I want to give you a quote from 1 Peter, uh, 2 Peter verse, um, uh, Chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. It says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Think about that. We can become partakers of God's divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about the promises that are in these next few verses. They're amazing. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Should we not want to be lifelong learners? and learning more about God and how we can please him. People have asked me, and more and more in the past few years, when I'll be retiring. And my answer is that I have no plans to retire. I don't think I'm going to change that answer, um, because retiring to me means leaving something without having something else to go to. You can be sure that if um, I stop doing what I've been doing for the last 38 years, it will not be from something, but leaving to do something else. And no matter what it is, I'll always be learning. So as I bring this wandering journey to a close, I'd like to share with you one of my favorite psalms. I have 150 of them, by the way. But the one that is one of my most favorite is number 16. So I'll close by praying a prayer for all of us based on verses 8 through 11. Let's pray together, okay? Lord, please help us to each be able to say, I have set the Lord always before me because you are at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, please make our hearts to be glad and all of us to rejoice and our flesh to also dwell secure. For we are confident that you will not abandon us or let us Who have been declared holy in Christ to be lost forever? Instead, you make known to us the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Any questions or things you'd like to ask?
1: Otherwise,
0: I'll push the button.
1: and you mentioned when you first got up there about if we would all just be more accountable to solve a volatile world, world's yeah. problems. But what characteristic would you say to people come off the rails most that they find themselves in? in they have to be in a situation where conflict or riot has to be resolved. Is there, yeah, is it one of the fruits of the spirit? If people would only be more like something, what would help out?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, Andy. I think the answer I'll give. and it's not a cop-out, but it's the one that occurred to me first as you said that, and that is every person is unique and different, and because of that, we come into conflict with others because they're unique and different, (laughs) okay? And so to give an answer for a particular fruit of the Spirit or a particular uh, characteristic, I would say, would be hard to do, but there is something in you that is innate in you It's your sin nature that causes you to go off the rails, so to speak, as as you put it. And so um, what we need to do, and I think this is the answer that I would arrive at, having talked for a few minutes here, I've come up with it, is that we need to know ourselves better. And the problem is we so many times have blind spots that we're not willing to look at. So we need to ask, as in Psalm 39, uh, the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart and then help me to know my heart so that I understand more what my shortcomings are so that I'm more ready to face up to those, take responsibility, and then accept the consequences and do what I need to do to live in better harmony with other people, okay? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. Keith, I've got a question uh, just more along the same line and just the culture we're living in right now. I think the culture we're being forced to make decisions about as Christians what we will what we won't affirm or
1: embrace from from especially the younger culture coming up and um,
0: we know the scripture tells us that Jesus was was full of grace and truth but Mm -hmm. we're sometimes uh, Christians can come off the cross as being you know heavier on the truth side and and judgmental but 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 there needs to be a path to reach people with the gospel Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so 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 what are some things we might want to think about in terms of how we approach people build bridges so that we can get you know, seen as peacemakers? Like you're saying. Yeah, good question. And <clears throat> we could probably talk for another hour about that one. <laughs> In fact, we spent <clears throat> last weekend a little bit with Matt Moore asking that very question. How can we be more filled with grace and truth? How can we get a better balance of them? Um, <clears throat> again, not to be uh, giving too glib or too short an answer, I would say the best way is to live our lives like Christ and tried to emulate Christ as our example. He was full of grace and truth in the perfect balance. And one of the things I think that's most important for us is, again, to go back to the other question, is know yourself. Know what is it that triggers me, that gives me um, a reason to be less gracious. And I think it's really important, and Matt Moore made this point last weekend too, I'm going back to it because it's fresh in my mind, is we need to be asking questions instead of just hearing somebody and, and making a rash judgment and coming up with a conclusion, we need to be asking probing questions. The way he put it was, if his parents had just probed his heart a little more and a little better, he probably would have had a different outcome. He wasn't blaming his parents, but he was pointing out that that was part of his issue. I think when <clears throat> people are having a problem in our society, we're too quick to judge. And I think this happens more and more we come up with a judgment and then we're unwilling to to even change our mind so it's probably a lot of internal how can i be more like christ and how can i be emulating his his example how can i ask the right questions even if somebody's asking me a question what did christ do a lot of times he turned it around and said i ask you this question and he got the person thinking and sometimes by getting the other person just examining the, their own motives and their own <coughs> perspectives, we can start to make some inroads. Good question. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yes?
1: Less than question, just more of a comment or a realization, you know, less experienced in this realm than you are, obviously. Great. And I think one of the, the themes I take away from this as well, the relationship with God, Jesus requires nothing from you to submit yourself to him and take that journey, it's not necessarily a.
0: Other than exercising faith.
1: Yeah. That's it, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but that, that isn't just an, a goal that's ended at that decision point. It's a journey throughout life to stay disciplined, mm-hmm. avoid the constant temptations of life. And I know this yeah. all sounds simple, yeah. but hearing it through all these examples, I got a page of notes here, like every different example that you took that you mentioned, most of which came from scripture. I mean, it, it's, it's almost like a playbook that really identifies like this isn't just something that you make the decision and okay everything's okay it's like well there, mm-hmm. there's gonna be trials there's gonna be things and there's gonna be um, uh, I say it no other way than like getting up in the morning and running in the cold mm-hmm. it's gonna mm-hmm. be discipline that you've got to fight and, and train your mind and, yeah you that intertwined with Christ absolutely um, so again I, that's probably obvious for a lot of people here but you know there's a lot of minor things that can come up and you don't even think about it because you know, like, they're taking you kind of away from your path it's like I've arrived, but I know you haven't, right? That journey's continuously so yeah. yeah the other thing I would just say is you, you made a comment about it in fellowship with believers, but this dovetails with something I've recently just read, this, uh, this poem, and it's called See a Sermon. Um, really, really interesting poem. It basically just says that the gentleman mentioned he'd rather see the sermon than hear the sermon in the sense of someone that just, mm-hmm. rather than speaking from the pulpit, lives by what they, and I would say, and you're probably not gonna want me to say this out loud, but like, mm-hmm. you are that.
0: Mm. I don't lie. want you to every, say that. Everything <laughs> yeah. did, every but to the extent that that, 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 that. that is true, give Christian. give you're God you're the right. glory. Right, mm-hmm. okay. but with yeah.
1: that what yeah. I'm saying is that yeah. don't feels this point in fellowship with believers. I feel I've been fortunate to spend time with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've me too. Shared your time with me and clearly, mm-hmm. you know, I'm somebody that was brought into your life that you've made an impact on through mm-hmm. God But mm-hmm. with that Praise ties God. ties yeah. into that that, you know, clearly you're someone that's I feel is is preaching or is doing the things that they talk about. So thank you.
0: And, you know, there's another quote, just if we can bring up another quote, I I think it comes right out of what you said, Max, and that is, um, preach the gospel when necessary, use words, Mm. right? We can preach a whole sermon by the way we live our lives. And sometimes when we do that, somebody's going to come up to you and say, how come you're different? That's happened to me from time to time. And that's a great open door to say, well, how much time do you have? (laughs) An hour? Okay, well, we're over time now, so I'm gonna push this button.